0: Okay, so now the video has started. Yes, um, let me repeat that so that you can can hear it. Um, and And that is is that we have childish toys that we start playing with. Little girls see have little dolls, and in their imagination, the doll is a real person. Okay? That's the personification of things. People sometimes even name their automobile. A lot of rich people will name the house they live in. It's an estate, you know, like Oakwood or something like that. Try to name things, which gives it kind of a magical quality because it gives it a personality. All right. And the real teachings of the Buddha has to do with that the personality that we develop over the course of our childhood is not who we are. That in fact that personality is a combination of all of the rites, rules, rituals, the silabata Paramasa, and we can say that is the structure. The ways that things are supposed to be. Your idea of how things are and should be is the one part of it. And then the other side of it is your internal reaction to that. An example of you should go to the store. Oh, I don't want to go to the store right now. You should write that email. Oh, I don't want to write that email right now. And so those two components make part of the, the personality which keeps us in a state of a crowd. We're not in union. We're not in sync with ourselves. We have various personality aspects, and those personality aspects uh, are not fixed. But that's part of the teachings of uh, the distinction of the Buddha from the Hindu, was that their idea is, is that things are fixed like the person is uh, reincarnated it's the same dude with the same soul and the buddha's pointing out no that the soul just arises and passes away on a on a regular basis and we can change it you see if we're locked into place and determined by our comma then we don't have a whole lot of choices but the buddha teaches we've got choice This is what the right effort is all about in the Eightfold Noble Path, is we have to take the effort to make a choice and make a change. So in this regard, you could say that the Mahasi Method is actually closer to Hinduism than it is to Buddhism, because it leaves out that key ingredient that you can change and you must. Now, here's the thing about the Mahasi Method that we were talking about before. And that is, is that no matter how many years of practice or how deep or whatever different superlatives you want to use about it, eventually the meditator is going to have to make a change in order to become enlightened because he already has the idea that he's not enlightened. That's why he's practicing all of this (laughs) Mahasi, right? Catch 22. He's going to have to change. In order to become a light okay where does the change come in then the answer is is the change comes in at step 11 of that 16 stages of insight all of those uh, 10 steps before that is ordinary life but once we take the noble right effort to make changes only then are we on step 12, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Noble Path? That's when it becomes noble. When we're willing to make a change. Now, most of the world is born in a state of... In fact, all babies are born as victims. What do we mean by that? They can't take care of themselves. When, uh, uh, when the doctor picks the babe up and spanks him on the bottom the child lets out an insolence cry. He, the, the infant doesn't turn around and look at the doctor square in the face and say, cut that out. No, he didn't do that. Uh, he's, our, he's just the victim here. He cannot roar the lion's roar. So the whole point then is, is that as we grow up, we stay in that victim's position. When we're really, really young, we are nurtured and cared for. But about the age of three to six, in that range, we are changed into mommy's little helper. From mommy's tender infant into mommy's little helper, which means that mommy starts ordering us around and telling us what to do. Your homework. Eat your peas. You can't have your dessert until you eat your vegetables. That's one of them. How about clean your room? Pick up your toys. Do what I say to do. Hold my hand, right? All this kind of stuff, and we still remain victims. And but in some societies, there is a, um, a rite of passage that determines when a child becomes an adult. An example in the really, really old days is when a little boy was old enough to go on the hunt with the big dudes. He was a man, even if that was six or seven. He was no longer under mommy's thumb. And he grew up, okay, but in our society we, we don't have much of that and so we remain victims, we remain under the thumb of family, priests, uh, doctors, psychologists, uh, uh, gurus, shaman, all kinds of things and we stay in that one down position. When are we ever going to come out of that, to change that, to come out of the bottom position into the top position? With the Mahasi method, all the best we can do is just keep noticing what an idiot I am about being a victim to everything, especially to my own feelings. When is someone ever going to figure out that they don't have to be afraid? Unless they practice being not afraid and how do we practice being not afraid well that's actually part of Anapanasati specifically because our fears come from unwholesome thoughts and just noting unwholesome thoughts is just going to keep the unwholesome thoughts rolling on exactly Mm -hmm. so we got to put a stop to all of that once we recognize what's going on So this is where the Eightfold Noble Path really comes in. And that is that it is, in fact, the method of teaching what the Buddha actually teaches. And what does the Buddha say that he actually teaches? And he's taught this many times. I've seen four occasions of four different suttas where he says, both formerly and now, I teach only one thing. And that is dukkha, dukkha naroda. Have you ever heard that phrase?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've read the Pali. Okay, so um, he only teaches one thing,
0: Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. That makes the entire show easy. It's not a difficult practice to do. It's easy to do. And the description then of Dukkha Naroda, Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda, is... Let's do the dukkha when we see it, than the road apart right now. Let's avoid it now. This is what it means, dukkha dukkha. The road. You see it and you whack it. You see it and you whack it. Okay. In fact, there's uh, one particular sutta, sutta number 19, in Majjhima Nikaya, where uh, the reference is to a, a cow herd that has cows that have to go through the market on their way to the pasture. And so the cows are liable to grab a, 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 a stock of corn or a carrot or something like that. So the cow herd has to be very careful to keep those cows from stealing food along the way. And so he takes a stick and he'll whack them. That cow even looks at that food stall and whack, <laughs> and he keeps the cows in line. That in fact, if you just let the cows go loose, they could do as much damage that the whole community would just take his cows away from him as payment for the damage they did. And so it's important for him to keep his cows in order. What does that mean now for us with our own minds, which are like the cows that we need to actually keep in line rather than wandering off? And so the Mahasi method means is that, oh, we're tracking the cows as they wander around doing damage, rather than keeping them in line. So this is the actual then practice that we bring in is with this right effort. You see, seeing what's going on is the combination of sati to wake up and look at what's happening And then, that's part of the Eightfold Noble Path. Look, looking, see what you're doing, notice, noticing. That part is correct. Also, the rising, falling, touching, sitting is correct in the sense of the rising of the breath, the falling of the breath, the tactile sensations all over the body and the touch of the cloth and everything. You can experience and wake up the whole body as well as the sitting which is the proprioceptic, it's the postures of the body and, and do we know what posture that we're in? And all of that is information that comes through. So that part is the body and we have to know those things. We have to see it. However, there is more to the Eightfold noble path than two. The third one is right effort. That once we notice that something needs to be changed, we change it. For instance, if the body is uncomfortable, we change the body until it is comfortable. If we notice that we're actually in a dangerous place, let's leave that place and go to a safe place so that we can practice safely. This is why the Buddha recommends go to the forest, go to the foot of a tree, go to an empty hut. Go to a pot of straw. And, and that little phrase is in a lot of different suttas, including the um, Anapanasati Sutta, the Kaya, Nipassana Sutta, and many others. And never have I ever seen the Buddha recommend go to a meditation retreat hall and sit down in a great big crowd of people and pretend they're not there. so and in fact a lot of people when they're in those meditation halls they're not in a safe place they feel afraid they think they've got to match up to some standard that they've created in their own mind and all kinds of other stuff and and so really getting ourselves in a place where we do see in reality that it's a safe place it's a comfortable place then we can start to practice with that attitude and start talking about that. In fact, this moment, we feel safe. There's no place to go. I don't have to wait for the bell to ring. I'm already okay. Everything is all right. Everything is fine. And so we begin to have those kind of wholesome thoughts and stay wholesome when we're watching the breathing and watching the body. We do so with wholesome thoughts. And pretty soon, what happens is, is that we begin to then feel safe and secure. The reality is, is that the body's in a safe, secure place. And when we talk to ourselves about it, then we begin to feel safe and secure. And a lot of students will often talk about, you know, after I practice for a little while, I feel a whole lot of anxiety. You know what that means? It means that. They actually don't feel all of that safe, that the surface level is being peeled off and now they feel actually filled with tension quite often. And so now we have to deal with that. And how do we deal with it? Same way that we've been dealing with it, just, you know, with nourishing. Rather than ordering ourselves to stop being afraid, we just say everything's okay, everything's all right, everything is fine, no problems and we begin to see it that way, and then we begin to lose our fear. We begin to actually feel comfortable, and with the feeling comfortable, we also begin to feel satisfied, that at least right now everything's okay. And that state of satisfaction, then, is exactly opposite of Dukkha for which we started. Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda and Dukkha Sukha are the same things, let's come out of our unhappy, unfortunate, problem solving mentality into a relaxed, happy state where there's nothing to do and no place to go, so that we become satisfied, we actually in a way, in a metaphorical way, we return to paradise, the paradise that was always here but our judgment had thrown us out of paradise. But when we sit down and just recognize everything's okay, we come to realize that, hey, things were already okay. And all I have to do is just relax and enjoy my life.
1: So That's all there is good. So is there something like enlightenment or... That's enlightenment, is to sit down and say, hey, I don't
0: have to go be enlightened. Let somebody else who wants to believe enlightenment, let them go do that. I'm having too much fun just sitting here doing a whole bunch of nothing. Now, who's more satisfied? The one who is actually satisfied or the one who's chasing after something he calls enlightenment, but he doesn't even know for sure what it is. But then that sounds
1: more like dukkha than sukha But then all these people, all these pastors who have. Had certain experiences after like a lot of concentration. And doing all of this work, they
0: if they have the insight to quit working so hard and relax and enjoy their life, then that's a good insight. But most of them don't have that insight. They have an insight to work harder.
1: (laughs) So what is one supposed to do? I mean, not do anything?
0: Ah, you can't do that. You don't have that kind of control of your mind yet. But you do have enough control over it to change it is. It's almost like you can't stop the car from rolling downhill. But you can get behind the wheel and steer it. To keep it as best you can out of danger. Okay. And if you keep going like that, eventually you'll hit the bottom of the hill. Now you're okay. So that's one way of of thinking about it. You still have to be in there steering your way the best you can. Watch what you're doing. Watch where you're going. If you lose track of it, you're going to crash that poor car right into a tree. So this is actually what we mean then by, um, you know, looking at it, seeing it, but. If the car is careening down the, the hill and we don't take a hold of the steering wheel, what's the point of watching where we're going? All we're doing is terrifying ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> we can see that tree coming and we still won't grab the steering wheel and change it. We just let ourselves smack right into that tree. That's the Mahasi method. We have to actually add that third ingredient. That's important point of the Eightfold Noble Path is one's right effort. You have to take control and steer the best you can and keep watching and keep taking control of those thoughts and th- think the way that you want to. Here's a way of saying it. Every thought or any thought that you could have could be improved. Hmm? Could be polished up a bit. And if you come across a thought that you think is so good that it can't be improved, then congratulate yourself for it, which is an improvement in itself. And so we wind up congratulating ourselves. This is actually the fourth item on the Eightfold Noble Path is Sama Sankapa, which is the change of attitude from being that victim into having some success. And what are we successful at? Becoming satisfied. We keep practicing being satisfied. We keep practicing coming into this present moment and just relaxing and being satisfied. And pretty soon we get the idea, you know, I can do this. And as we practice on, we get the idea, I can do this anytime. Anytime I can do this. When I'm getting arrested, When I'm being rolled down the hall uh, in a gurney at the hospital, when they're dumping dirt on me, I can handle it. I can handle anything. This is the idea of the mentality that we develop, that no matter what obstructions appear in the mind, we can handle it. We can throw that stuff out and come back to be the winner. That's That's just what we would mean then by the lion. The lion's war. The lion is, I can handle this. Whatever it is, I can handle it. Which means quite a change in our attitude from being a victim. Which basically is saying, oh, I can't handle that, at least not without some help. And so the Samasankapa then adds that fourth element, which also in the uh, Sanskrit is shraddha. And in the Pali, it's sada. Do you know what that word means?
1: Shadha be faith or something like that.
0: I have heard it being mistranslated that way. All right. But actually, yeah. what we mean instead is confidence due to he- heavy evidence. You see, faith, the way that faith is used, the word faith, Is is that we believe something's going to happen without any evidence at all. Like a god or something like that. But a farmer can have faith it's going to rain. Because he's looking at the clouds and he sees the wind and the moon and uh, the movement. And he can feel the change of the temperature and all of that kind of stuff. And he's got evidence. He can call that faith. But it's really shraddha. It's really confident. I am confident because I have evidence that it's going to rain. So this is also, we have confidence that we can, in fact, clean out the mind if it gets dirty again. Because we keep being able to do that. Every time it gets dirty, we say, aha, I got that. Or as the Buddha says, aha, I see you, Mara. Whenever we see the dirt come into the mind, we catch it, throw it out, clean the place up again. Any mess that's made on the floor of the mind, we pick it up and put it back on the shelf, dust things off, get things back in order. that's in fact what we could look for in the sense of an orderly mind, that on the Eightfold noble path, in fact, the fifth item that we would look at is the orderly mind, when a mind is unified, when it's in order, when there is no internal conflicts. An example of an internal conflict is when people have doubt about this, that, and the other thing, doubt about meditation or magic or any of that kind of stuff. That doubt makes the mind divided. Maybe it's this, maybe it's that. Another kind of way that the mind is divided is when we're not honest, either with ourselves or with others. Our delusion is not in sync with reality. That in fact, in Christianity, that Jesus has been known to say that I and my father are one, except that that was Abba, which meant above and about. So he's in sync with the reality around him. Okay, and so that's what keeps a mind organized and unified is because it's in sync with reality. It doesn't have to lie. It doesn't have to cover up its damage. That we could be honest. We're not afraid. We're not afraid of getting caught. In fact, we want to catch it because it's going to be Dukkha. If we don't catch it and do it again, there's just more pain there. So let's find it and fix it so that it doesn't bother us anymore. It's almost like this. Maybe that you picked up a splinter in your life, either on your hands or on your foot. And it's hard to walk with that splinter on the foot. You know you know every step that you take about where to put the foot in order to avoid more pain from that splinter. So we're very mindful of that splinter. We know that it is painful. This is a whole lot of apasana going on when we're walking around with that splinter in the foot. When are we ever going to take the effort to pull out the splinter? Ah, and then the next day, wow, my foot feels a whole lot better because we took that splinter out yesterday. Right? And so there's the four points. The sati, it's painful, and we are mindful every moment. Then um, we can see the pain. Then we take the effort to pull it out. And now we can be joyful that we can walk better. And now we're all over the place, which means that now the foot is useful. Now the foot is back in sync with the body. So any part of us that's in pain is also out of the normal sync. And we want to be able to get ourselves back into a synchronized, unified state of mind where there are no internal conflicts, no dislikes. We actually let the mind become satisfied, that the satisfaction itself is the glue that binds it from success, excuse me, from satisfaction, rather, into success. And so satisfaction leads success, and and success then leads into this unification. But now, it's a strong, um, no longer victim position to be in. That in fact you can change from what you were a victim into what you can be, your own champion. And if you're really satisfied with who you are, then you don't need any of the, mag- of the magical stuff. In fact, why would people want magic? In order to show off, in in order to take over and control other people. But if you want, don't want to show off, if you don't want to control other people, then what's the point of even having the magic? It's just something, some useless uh, <laughs> Billy Bob that just sits around with no practicality. <laughs> because it's so much associated with dukkha look how much people dukkha have look how much people dukkha people have because they want it so badly they get they wind up being with charlatans have you ever heard of satya saibaba in india in bangalore yeah, uh huh. Even with large uh, displays of the photos that were taken surreptitiously of watching him do all of his sleight of hand stuff, winding up in the newspaper, still he had millions of followers who were really, really very gleeful about
1: being ripped off. <laughs> yeah, that is unfortunate. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and so you know that there's a lot of that not just in India, but it's all over. Seances were very popular in the United States until they began to get exposed.
1: But some of it has to be like real. I mean, I know there are crooks, especially in this area. There are people who are gullible, but then at least like some minor fraction of that population is probably genuine. Is what? It's genuine, it's like real, I mean. I don't
0: understand. A crook. Uh, well, there's two possibilities if you're dealing with something um, that is incorrect. Would we'll you start with that word incorrect? One is that you know that it's incorrect and you do it anyway. And the other one is, is that you don't know that it's incorrect. And so you do it because you think it's correct. One's a religion and the other one's a charlatan. The charlatan knows that he's pulling people's leg. Now, here's the thing. Inside of religion, when the preacher actually knows that he's being a charlatan, he's being a charlatan. But a lot of preachers, they don't know. They think that it's all true. But there have been occasions, in fact, there's a website that has, last time I heard, about 10,000 members. And to become a member, you have to be active clergy and you have left Christianity. It's for that group of people who just realized after reading something or another in the Bible, wow, this whole thing is a pile of crap. And here I have been dedicated to it my whole life. And I dare not say that on the pulpit on Sunday morning, because if I let out what I know, I'll lose my house, I'll lose my furniture, I'll lose my wife, I'll lose my kids, I'll lose my job, I'll lose my car, I'll I'll really be out if I let it out. And so they keep it quiet, because they're too attached. Where that first started showing up, by the way, was in the seminaries. They got the Bible scholars who were the ones who were really, really deeply involved with it. And the deeper they got, the more crap they saw until eventually they recognized that the whole thing is like a barrel of apples that has just too many bad apples in it now. But they still had to teach the um, uh, the students who were becoming preachers. But that's a big issue now in Christianity is the people who were supposed to be the most dedicated to the faith winds up seeing right through it, but they're still running it as a sham. And then there's a lot of new preachers who haven't figured out that the whole thing is a sham yet.
1: Is that true in Buddhism as well?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. That in fact, you could say then that within the core of the monks, you're going to have three monks, three different groups, those that are ignorant. And then particular of the magic and that will always be the new ones. And then you will have those who begin to figure it out. And do it anyway. Because there's some money in it. And then there are the nobles who generally refrain from going around and doing any ceremonies, like going to funerals and going to house blessings and um, chanting on Buddha days and things like this. There are those monks who, they will do it anyway um, because it's kind of required to them. So there are then poor kinds, those that are ignorant and actually do it. Those that are wise to it, but exploit it anyway. Those that go along to get along, and then those who refuse to participate in magical ceremonies. But Buddhism is full of magical ceremonies. And if the people understood the Pali, they wouldn't be so magical. The problem is, is that people don't understand anything the monks are chanting. So long as they're chanting something, It must be magical. And in fact, in many cases, what the monks are actually chanting should remove any doubt in the people's mind that this uh, ceremony uh, ritual is nothing but a ceremony and a ritual. And it's not magical at all. It's
1: just Dhamma. Yeah, but I'm not like talking about rituals. I'm like, is there. uh, So have you heard of Deepama? Say again, have you heard of D Bama?
0: D Bama,
1: D Bama. Yeah,
0: no, I don't know. D Bama. Um,
1: So I think she. She's supposed to be someone who had. uh, These powers. Okay. well, of course, I mean, people have got
0: to advertise that they can do stuff. Otherwise, they're not going to get any followers and then who cares?
1: Yeah, but um,
0: so. This is no doubt in India, I suppose.
1: Um? Yeah, I mean her teacher was. Uh, an Indian Buddhist who was whose teacher was Mahasi. Uh. One of the Mahasis. Uh, so I'm not really sure if it's. Uh. It's like an Indian tradition. It's more like a, I think it's a Burmese Buddhist tradition. Yes. Um, uh-huh. But
0: in in many cases, the way that it is taught is just one step away from or actually fully already into magical belief. That the real teachings of the Buddha are not widely known or widely spread. Um, and let us say that, but it is known, and it is spread. In Laos, in Cambodia, in Thailand, in uh, the Dalai Lama, for instance, was a student of Buddha Dasa in Thailand. So there are nobles all over but by and large people are only fed the ordinary Dhamma and are never exposed to the um, uh, the teachings of the buddha in this one point this is how important it is and that is is that because the magic is there and the magic is so powerful you got to go get the magic somehow in order to be powerful and that's not what the Buddha teaches. The Buddha teaches is, is, that no, you've got to change inside. You need to stop chasing things that you want and start being happy with the way things are. And that's such a radical thing that, in fact, ordinary Buddhism just moves right into any ordinary society. And and there's a lot of really good things within ordinary Buddhism, but liberation is not one of them. The liberation means that you actually have to change from being unliberated into liberated. That in fact, everything has to do with some change, and most people uh, have boundaries as to how much and how far they will change. But most of us, starting off as victims, think that we can't change. And because we can't, we need somebody who does magic. Maybe their magic will help me change, because I can't do it by myself. Let's have some Shakti pot, All right? The people who are receiving Chaktipot, they they want that because they think it's good for them somehow. And they're getting something they don't already have. And basically all they're getting is wet. Which is a whole lot better than being dry, I suppose. And so it does have some value. So this is the whole point that we have to come out of the mentality of, I need help. I need magic. I need this. I need a guru. I need a teacher. I need a God. I need a personal relationship with Jesus. I need a plastic Jesus writing on the dashboard of my truck or I'll wreck my car. This is the mentality. We start off in childhood with that mentality and then we will receive any religion or any bullshit that we're taught from our childhood on that fits in with that child's mentality of i'm not good enough so the question is when are we going to change from that When are we going to grow up and be a big person? One who knows for sure. In fact, even people who were bullies, let's say, or become cops, and they become violent and harm people like that. They're still insecure on the inside. If they were really secure, they wouldn't bother to harm anybody. In fact, a really secure person wouldn't bother to be a cop. Why should I put myself in danger? When in fact, I don't have to actually ever be in danger. I'm wise enough to stay out of danger. And so let's not go intentionally into danger. That's a stupid thing to do. If, I act, if I'm if i in danger, I'll start to act like I'm in danger. And then I want out. And so I'll hurt somebody to think that I'll feel safe when in fact all I've done is hurt somebody. So if we recognize a lot of our professions are like that, if we already come to the point of feeling safe by practicing Every time that we see the unsafeness let's look around and say, no, nope, I can actually feel safe right now. I can do that work tomorrow. I don't have to do anything right now. I can just sit here and enjoy being alive and still alive. Nothing to fear right now. And so these are some of the wholesome thoughts that we can have about being not afraid being safe and secure and comfortable and wow isn't this nice and allow ourselves to get into a state of satisfaction
1: is that go ahead is that um like lying to oneself i mean
0: if you don't believe it then you're lying to yourself and you know that you're lying to yourself But you're lying to yourself in two ways there's two levels of lies because deeper down you know that it actually is the truth
1: how do you get like the drive to do anything in life if you why should you drive look at what does already drive you and
0: bring them all of those drivers to to breaking them stopping them and stop driving yourself so much. Why should you want to be driven? That makes no sense. (laughs) Why not just cruise and do what you want to do rather than going around being driven to do stuff? Mostly it's being driven by fear or greed, one of the two. But greed and fear are actually the same thing. Greed is just the fear of doing without. So, the baseline of feeling is fear. Let's come out of the fear, and then you can go around doing living your life and feeling the way you want to feel, rather than being driven by fear All the way over to the magic lady. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. (laughs) It makes sense. Uh, Yes,
0: that's the whole point. Let's start using and making sense. Let's start using our wisdom. Let's start putting two and two together to recognize that our feelings may be incorrect. What we want inside may be different than what's real. And that we, and you already know through your own experience with reality that when you've got a choice and you know you've got a choice that you would actually choose the reality rather than the dreams and the desires. That it's always better to take reality. Because the dreams and desires are not substantial, that vehicle's gonna fall apart 10 steps down
1: the road so when you say uh, when like there's no contradiction in my mind or in anyone's mind when we get rid of fear and we can do whatever we want but then there is going to be a desire at that time right like we get rid of the fear but then there is something oh,
0: you're you're working way too hard don't work so hard okay don't get caught on the definitions and the meanings of the words. And in fact, this is what we're trying to come out of is a set of rules. OK, that we're talking about seeing things directly. And so you could say that, in fact, in the sense of attachment or drives, caring and carry, they all have this interrelated thing that when you want something or like something, You have to carry it with you. You carry it. You're attached to it. So when you go, if you're attached to a ball and chain, you've gotta take the ball and chain with you because you're attached to it, right? This is a basic concept within Buddhism. It's just missing a point. And that is that there are fortunate attachments. Let's choose wisely what we do attach to. And one of the things that's worthy of being attached to is this present moment, to be here now. It's not worth uh, daydreaming much of the time. So let's in fact attach to the present moment rather than attach to the daydreams of the past to the future. Or wishing for something and wanting something. It's better just to experience being in the here now. That's one of the attachments. Another attachment that we can have that would be nourishing, you see, most of the time we're driven by instincts, the self-preservation instinct being the strongest. And that's the one that we normally think of as who are, who we are ourselves. But generally we are with ourselves critical. And so one of the ways that we can change would be to start attaching to being nourishing, being friends with ourselves, being OK the way you are, that you don't have to be special and super duper. You came to this uh, with uh, with warts. So love yourself, warts and all. Begin to accept that it's OK. All the damage I did in the past. Didn't kill me. That I'm I'm still alive, so I didn't screw up that bad, because I'm still here. Okay, so we can begin to appreciate that there was some good and some bad in the past, but we don't have to attach to either the good or the bad. We can be more attached to seeing that we're living actually in this present moment. So that we can then become or take a kindly eye to the past. Rather than looking at the disasters, we can look at it as, oh, well, thanks for that. Wow, I've built it around the corner. I've really seen a whole lot. That's very interesting. In other words, we take a positive attitude about it. And so we begin then to attach to having a positive attitude. We can attach to being a winner. Attached to feeling comfortable, so there's a lot of stuff that we that are really wholesome and worthy of being attached to, as well as a whole lot of stuff that's painful when we attach to that.
1: So, um, I think what I just wanted to understand what would be the wholesome thoughts and what would be unwholesome thoughts. Then, like, what should we increase and what should we Get rid of.
0: All it's- right. Well, there's easy ways to answer that. But in fact, we've been doing that. The thoughts about this present moment are normally going to be more wholesome and healthy than thoughts about the past or the future. So that's an easy way to look. The next is if you're thinking about something that would give you bad feelings, then you can change that. So if you're thinking about the argument that you had with Aunt Susie, instead you can say, wow, I'm glad I don't have to argue with Aunt Susie today. And I can kiss her goodbye. Bye-bye, Aunt Susie. I'm going to sit here and enjoy this moment instead. Okay? So this is the way that we do it. We begin to recognize a whole lot of stuff about the past is unwholesome. We don't have to think about it. Basically, it's almost as if we have a to-do list of all the things that we know that are broken and we found out that they were broken in the past. And so now i got to do this, that, and the other thing. So in fact, no, you don't. You don't have to do anything. You're okay right now. And so, in a way, you could say that this is the action that leads to the end of action. You use the word driven and driving before okay so the underlying drivers that drive us to inappropriate and and too much action when we remove those then the then the actions that we take are done through uh drives that come out of wisdom and out of attaching to uh wholesome and appropriate things For instance, putting oneself in danger to uh, help a comrade to rush out into the road to throw a child out of the way of an oncoming car. That we no longer think about ourselves. We are in the situation and we respond in a
1: wholesome way. So does this uh, wisdom Arise spontaneously after you do this for a long time. Wisdom has
0: to do with the quality of seeing how things are headed. Look at the direction that things are going. An example of that is, is that when a gun goes off. The bullet is going to come out the barrel. And so any way that the barrel is pointing on any particular gun is dangerous. Beside the gun, if the gun goes off, there's no danger. But where the barrel is pointed, that's a dangerous point. So we need to keep track of which direction guns are pointed. In fact, I've heard that uh, on modern um, uh, fire ranges, that it's a big, big deal that everybody has to keep very close track of which direction their barrel is pointed. That you don't ever point your gun at another person. That person will not like it, okay? Well, we can take that then is don't ever point your mouth at somebody because they're not going to like it when you shoot your mouth off. <laughs> and so we could use wisdom to make that, that changeover from the gun, which we can see through wisdom. Don't lose track of which way the gun is pointed. And then now we can also do that with our own actions. Without the gun. So we begin to see where danger is. We begin to see it. And you could then say that now that we've actually changed the word from wholesome to unwholesome, to where are the dangers. Can you see the danger? Or another way of saying it, can you see what is dukkha and what is sukkha? We keep choosing every time we have a choice. We're going to choose sukkha over dukkha. We choose friendship over enemy. We choose yes over no. We choose smiling over frowning. We have a choice and we start making the choice over and over and over again and pretty good. We get good at doing the right thing. We build up habits. Before, we were in the habit of just doing whatever and we wind up spending a lot of time talking ourselves into feeling bad. Now it's time to start talking ourselves into feeling good. In the Anapanasati Sutta, this is called gladdening the mind, brightening the mind. And and in this case, it has more to do than just the words we say. But we also have to brighten the state of mind. We have to bring the mind up. In other words, we don't leave it as the victim saying uh, everything's going to be okay because you don't believe it. No, you got to bring the state of mind up also. You got to brighten the mind, make it shiny. Begin to have that, yes, I can do it attitude. And so this is how we practice going to the positive. Always look on the bright side of the moment. Whenever we can remember, we do it then. And so, actually, we, we want them to say, well, that's going to be pretty hard to do with the slings and arrows of the outrageous stupidities and whatnot that I have to deal with those people out there. And the answer to that is, well, yes, this is what actual practice is all about is to get away from it all and recognize that when we get away from it all, we brought it all with us anyway, and so now we've got to get rid of it a second time. But this is uh, the first one is to move away and get into seclusion. And then the second one is every unwholesome thought that comes up that belongs to the world, that belongs to the outside, you throw it out. And any thoughts that are arise that have to do with the inside and gushy and wholesome and nurturing, and wow, this is really great. We keep those and nourish those thoughts. And you can experiment with them. What kind of thoughts can you have that are wholesome? Begin to investigate that is something that you have to do. Then, in fact, we can already see that some thoughts are downright unwholesome. No doubt about it. And then there are other thoughts that are downright wholesome. No doubt about it. But then you have that 80% in between that we're not quite sure whether are wholesome or not. These are the ones that need to be investigated using the criteria by the way is this past or is this future or is this right now and so you can begin to whittle down so you can figure out what are good enough thoughts to have so thoughts about writing your boss an email
1: hmm
0: let's not do that one right now let's have thoughts about oh your boss is such a great guy i really honor him well i've learned so much from him
1: those are better thoughts to have But you eventually have to write a mail. So how do you plan for that? Pardon? But eventually you have to write, let's say you have to write a mail and then you have to plan for plan ahead. You have to look at the future.
0: Ah, but can you do that happily with wholesome thoughts or do you have to do it in unwholesome frustrations? I really don't want to write this email, but I've got to which is exactly where you were coming from right that very moment. And the answer is get yourself up and get yourself ready. Get your mojo going, get your spirit going, get your attitude. Hey, I can handle that email. No problem. Let me at it. And then you do the email. Wow, that makes sense. And while in the middle of the email, if you come, oh, this is so much work and you can say, wait a minute, I'll put it down. I've got better things to do with this moment. And then you go off and you get your mind back together and you feel good and then you say, hey, I can finish that email. Now I know what I want to say. Got it. Okay. So keep going back to the bright side. Keep remembering when the mind gets into a state of disrepair and go fix it. Over and over and over again. We have to keep practicing, keep practicing, keep practicing. Why? Because we're in such bad habits of feeling bad. So now it's time to keep practicing. And pretty soon we pile it up so that we begin to have more wholesome than unwholesome thoughts. And now we're heading in the right direction. we turn the ship around.
1: This is great advice. Uh, I'm really glad I called today.
0: <laughs> I've heard that before. Yeah.
1: Yeah. This is actually very useful. Good advice. Yeah. Well, it doesn't
0: come from me. It's the Buddha. This is what the Buddha says, which, makes, which actually adds value to it because you already had a great deal of respect for the Buddha. Now that you begin to figure out what it was that he actually taught, you can say, wow, he really did have it together. Me personally, I could have never figured this
1: out. I'm glad I had teachers. Well, I'm glad I have you, so this is Uh, (laughs) all right. right.
0: So let's finish now and uh, you can go start. Uh, incorporating this into your practice, and then let us co- say two, three days, maybe a week or so. Call me again and we'll go a little deeper. We've just gotten started.
1: Perfect. We've just been talking
0: about the Eightfold Noble Path, and we haven't talked about Anapanasati at all, hardly.
1: Yeah. Perfect. I mean, this is amazing. Thank you so much. Okay. We'll see you. See you.
0: Have a good day. Bye. yes You have a good minute right now have one
1: <laughs> <laughs> I would <will. laughs>